People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM, and we're going to be talking books for the next hour. It's just me in studio, so we're going to get through the books that are on my list. Next week, we'll be interviewing Francois Malby Anthony about her book, An Elephant in My Kitchen. It's the sequel to the international bestseller, The Elephant Whisperer. And the author of The Elephant Whisperer, Lawrence Anthony, was Francois's husband until his tragic passing away a few years ago. And here, Francois is continuing the story and the the adventure of looking after the elephants and the other animals, the rhinos, all the other animals in the game reserve that Lawrence and Francois ran together. So that's something exciting to look forward to for next week. And other interviews we're trying to line up. A few years ago, I interviewed an author, James Brabazon, about his book, My Friend the Mercenary. That was a non-fiction book about the, the wars in Sierra Leone and the attempted coup in Equatorial Guinea. He's got a thriller out that is called The Break Line. It's got a shout-out from Sebastian Junger. It's quite an exciting book, and I'm moving, trying to move mountains to get him on the show. And then also Louis de Ben, French-sounding surname, de Benieres. He's the author of Captain, Man, uh, Captain Carilli's Mandolin. He's got a new book out as well. And I'm trying to get him on the show also. So lots of exciting interviews lined up or putting into place to line up. Another book that I'm also reading at the moment is uh, Johan van Lochrenberg's Death and Taxes. And I'm also trying to get him on the show with the state capture hearings happening right now and uh, all the... Black Ops from Zuma and the Guptas uh, trying to get control over Treasury and uh, SARS. It'll be interesting to get someone like Jan van Lachwenberg on the show to tell us what he, what, what he saw. So that's all coming up in the future. For today, to start off with, I just want to update a story that we spoke about last week. The book is um, The Lost Boys of Bird Island. It was co-authored by... Mark, Minnie, and uh, Christine. I reviewed the book last week, and uh, earlier the book came out on the 6th or the 7th of August on a Monday, a week and one day later. On Tuesday, a week and a day later, Mark, Minnie, one of the co-authors, the the ex-police she was investigating, really shocking allegations of pedophile rings in the 1980s National Party involving cabinet ministers. He was found dead. And the book itself talks about two seemingly uh, suicides, two seeming suicides, which Mark Minney said very strongly he thought were carried out by some deep state security bodies within the National Party government, the National Party government, that's like the CCB. So it looked, now he's dead. He mentioned that there were three cabinet ministers involved. He named two of them. The third one, he said, is still alive, so he's not saying who it is. It looked like there was a lot of dark play as well. Uh, I got a a press release from uh, NB Publishers, that's the publishers of the Lost Boys of Bird Island. I just want to read this out because it does update the story and puts everything in a little bit slightly slightly more clear. It starts off with the quote, The pitiful cries of the Lost Boys of Bird Island have haunted me for the past 31 years. At last, their story is out. Chrissy, don't give up now. You're almost home. No government officials preventing you from investigating this time round. These were Mark Minnie's last words to me. They were extracted from a letter written shortly before he died. He called it his last piece of writing. So this is Chris Stain, his co-author, writing. This is my reply. So this is Chris Stain's reply. Mark, I will keep going. You knew that. 
I just wish you could have been here to go through all the new leads with me. If only you were still alive to see all the information and incredible confirmation that has come in since the book was published. You would have felt some vindication in that. But I have good news, Mark. There is already enough to start building a new docket. Once we are ready, we will hand it over for further action. That was all you ever wanted, a proper investigation. But you don't have to worry about it anymore. And nobody is going to steal this docket. Chrissy, that's Chris Stain. Then the press release goes on to say, In his final chapter of the book, Mark Minnie said he hoped that the boys... Who were sec- who he hoped the boys who was secretly treated in he sorry in his final chapter of the book Mark Minnie said he hoped the boy who was secretly secretly treated in hospital is still alive. I also hope that if there is anyone out there who has any knowledge of him or any of these missing boys, the lost boys of Bird Island, that they will come forward. Any victims who suffered at the hands of Dave Allen and company. Let your voices be heard. Do not remain silent any longer. It was Minnie's final wish that victims and people with more information would come forward and that there would be a proper investigation. He wanted the voices of the victims to be heard. Let's give him his final wish. Anyone with information on the lost boys of Bird Island can email us on birdisland2 2018 at gmail.com That's birdisland2018 at gmail.com In Minnie's final note he also said that he is tired and is looking forward to eternal rest The rest of his note is addressed to his family. So that's from the suicide note found by Mark Minnie when he was found dead on the outskirts of Port Elizabeth. It was just last week Tuesday a week and a day after his book was released. So that's updating last week's story and most probably the most explosive political book of 2018 in South Africa, The Lost Boys of Bird Island. Now, while I was reading The Lost Boys of Bird Island, I don't only ever read one book at a time, I was reading two other police procedurals and the truth is the lost boys of red island does feel like a police procedural if it was just a fiction if it was just a novel it would have been put together with lots of other police procedurals and reviewed like that the sad truth is that it was a true story but i thought of reviewing the two other police procedurals that i read at the same time i'm going to start with what is most probably going to be made into a movie it's a very short book. It's actually not a novel. It's a novella. It's written by Brandon Sanderson. Now, Brandon Sanderson is one of the, the kings of science fiction and fantasy. He has whole series of books. There's the Mistborn series, the Stormlight Archive, the Reckoners. There's a whole three books called Legion. There's collections of short stories. And then there's a few standalone novels. And then he's got a few novellas. One of them is called Snapshot. Most of his books are fantasy or science fiction. Snapshot has a little bit of a science fiction introduction, but the rest of it is pure police procedural. A snapshot is a future technology that hasn't been developed yet, so everything I'm saying is purely in the realm of fiction, and it will never happen. But what a snapshot is, is there's a machine that can take a snapshot of a day, of a city, and that snapshot can then be recreated using matter and an entire virtual world is created using matter. And it's used by the police department of this unnamed city to investigate real-world crimes. Because police can enter, people can enter into the snapshot, and once they're in the snapshot, they can interact with with virtual people who really are operating according to the way that their real selves would have operated. And then at the end of the investigation, the police leave the snapshot, they turn a button off, the machine collapses the entire virtual world into raw matter and whatever information, whatever leads they've gained from entering this virtual world is then used in the real world to solve the crime. So this is 
just where the the point of departure for Brandon Sanderson's snapshot. That's the that's the technology, the high tech, that's the the science fiction part of the book. We'll be back to discuss the story in snapshots right after this ad break. People of the book on one hundred one point nine High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're discussing a book called Snapshot by Brandon Sanderson. A snapshot is a form of a 3D photograph that becomes alive. They take a photograph of a city using a special machine. They then use that photo that, that looks like negative, put it in a machine, press the button, and it recreates that day that was Photographed in 3D reality. All the people are there. They go around, they go about their normal day as if it's a normal world, but it's just a virtual world. And the police force of this city, if they have to, if they have to solve a crime, they send investigators into the snapshot who then can look for new leads in this virtual world. At the end of the day, they come out, they put the button off and the entire world just collapses. The book involves Two investigators, two detectives, Anthony Davis and his partner, his partner Shares, who are sent into a snapshot on a regular basis to look for clues. While they're looking for simple clues to solve a simple murder, they come across a huge mass murderer who's killing people in the city. And they are very perturbed that their police department hasn't told them to investigate this, these murders. And they decide on their own to operate beyond their remit and to investigate these murders. So you've got two real cops in a virtual reality that reflects our world totally, and they start investigating murders that they are not supposed to investigate. In the snapshot, you have the possibility that things will deviate from the real world, and those are called deviations. And when they interact with people in the snapshot, they might create these deviations, which is another potential danger for them. If they are killed in the snapshot, they are dead. So it's a very interesting premise. Brandon Sanderson is a science fiction and a fantasy writer. So this is his perfect stomping grounds to play with ideas, to play with to play with storylines. The whole way through the book, I thought, this, I, I know how this is going to end. I, I'm, I, I know how this is going to end. And every possible end that I had in my mind, he deals with it during this very short novella, and he throws it out. Until at the very end, he ends it in a way that is a power punch to your stomach. You couldn't see it coming. Uh, he really does pull all his writer's pyrotechnic tricks out of his bag. He gives a great great story. I've never read Brandon Sanderson before, but Snapshot has convinced me that he is someone to watch out for. I don't want to go back and read a five book series of uh, fantasy, but if he starts a new series, I think I'll be there because this is pretty, pretty good writing, very concise, uh, very, very, very clever. The next police procedural is called The Hunter. It's by Andrew Reed, and it's got a shout-out from James Swallow on the front. Razor-sharp action from start to finish. James Swallow, the author of Nomad, uh, Exile and Ghost. We reviewed some of uh, James Swallow's books on the ra- on, on this show. So if he's giving a shout-out, I thought, you know, let's give uh, Police Procedural which is also a high-octane thriller, a chance. Andrew Reid is a debut novelist, so this is the first book he's written. And it really also does keep you immersed in an adrenaline shot of a book. Now, this is adrenaline in page form, in book form. Involves Cameron King, who is a... She's a fighter. She's a professional fighter. She goes into the ring and she fights other fighters it's not boxing it's actual fighting but a few years ago her career came to a very sudden end she was driving in a car with her brother he leant over he pulled her 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 strap he 
took over the, ra- the, the, the driving, uh, the steering wheel of the car. He got the car to flip over. When his sister Cameron came to, she was all alone in the car, upside down. The emergency services got her out. She had broken some of her bones in multiple places. She had to be in hospital for a long time. She had to go through a lot of physio to be able to walk again. Her fighting career came to an end, and her brother just disappeared. She spent the next two years of her life building up her strength and searching for her brother. She's become a bit of a bounty hunter in order to make ends, make make uh, make ends, and she's been looking for her brother, who's does who's totally off the grid, doesn't leave much of a trail in the virtual world or in the real world. And the book starts when she's got a lead that her brother is on the west coast of America, she follows the lead up and she gets sucked into a conspiracy of huge proportions, uh, possibly involving her brother and a secretive multi-billion dollar company that's trying to track every individual in America, get data from them, and then basically turn that data into a, uh, a revenue stream with greater and greater control over society. So you have, she, when she gets to the West Coast, she meets a policeman who, she walks in on a crime scene. She's been framed that she's killed somebody. While she's there, this policeman walks in and almost arrests her. She has to kick him using whatever she knew as a fighter. She knocks him out. She runs away. But later she f- she meets up with him again. And then you have all the ingredients for one knockout thriller. So that's The Hunter by Andrew Reid. And the interesting thing about this book is in order to create a credible uh, villain in the form of uh, 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 an RT company we really get the sense of big data companies and the the threat that they pose to privacy and the amount of power that they can exercise over a society it comes through very very strongly in the book so those are the two police procedurals novels that we've discussed today Brandon Sanderson's sci-fi Based, but then very strongly police procedural story, police going in and investigating a virtual reality, and then coming back to the real world, and then The Hunter by Andrew Reid, an adrenaline ride that's uh, been bound in paper with ink on paper, give you a really, very, a really, really fast read, a very exciting read. We'll be back with some more st- novels and some more non-fictions after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next book is actually going to be a giveaway. The book is called The Betrayal. It's by Kate Furnival. It's published by Simon & Schuster. All you have to do to win this book is send us your name and the title of the book that you are reading uh, on our SMS line. The SMS line is... Uh, the, essay, the, the, the book, we'll get to the, SS, the, the SMS number straight after this ad break, uh, straight after the, what the book's about. The book's called The Betrayal, and it's sisters, conspirators, murderers. Could you kill someone, someone you love? Paris, 1938. Romain is a pilot, reckless and passionate, while her sister Florence is a socialite who enjoys power and privilege. Both have something to prove and something to hide. Their worlds clash while fear stalks the streets of Paris. The drums of World War II are beating, and France is poised, ready to fall. Who will fall with her? So this is historical fiction. It's perfect for book clubs. It's Kate Furnival's The Betrayal. To win, all you have to do is SMS us on 34519 with your name and the title of the book that you are currently reading, or you can WhatsApp us. The WhatsApp number is... Zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. That's zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. Or you can WhatsApp. You you could SMS us on three four five one nine. 
your name and the title of the book that you're reading. Up for grabs is Kate Furnival's historical novel, The Betrayal, set in World War II in France. The next book I'm going to go to is called The Prague Sonata. It's by Bradford Morrow. It's published by Atlantic, and it's a big tome of a book. It's over 500 pages. If you like Dan Brown, but you like your Dan Brown to be a little bit more cerebral, then the Prague Sonata is for you. When German troops invade Prague in March 1939 and proceed to tighten their grip on the city, 30-year-old Atelie Bartosova is forced to relinquish the two things she holds most dear, her husband and an anonymous 18th-century sonata manuscript bequeathed to her by her father. Her husband Jakob disappears to join the underground resistance. In a similar act of defiance, Ottilie splits up the manuscript, which she calls her birthright and burden, to keep it from falling into Nazi hands, and then she flees the city. Just over 60 years later, early into the new millennium, an elderly Czech immigrant living in Queens in New York entrusts a young musicologist named Meta Taverner with the second movement of the sonata. Enchanted by the music and stimulated by the challenge of finding the other two orphaned movements and the identity of the composer, Meta turns her back on her studies and her skeptical boyfriend and sets off for Prague. The city casts its spell and captivates Meta, but she becomes disillusioned after funds run dry, leads become dead ends, and some of her musical mentor's contacts prove suspect. It's only when she meets and falls for Czech-American reporter Garrett Mills that she discovers fresh purpose. The pair pool their resources and wind in their search. However, they are closely tracked by other parties, including a former Communist Party stooge with friends in high places and an interest in the manuscript that in time turns into a toxic obsession. More than 12 years in the writing and more than 500 pages, long the Prague Sonata is without doubt Bradford Morrow's magnus opus. It does have some of the echoes of his previous novel, The Forgers, which focused on another couple making sense of past mysteries. In that book, The Forgers, through twists and turns in the antiquarian book world. In his new book, The Prague Sonata, Morrow delves deeper and aims higher. He splices his main narrative with flashbacks to the war, to World War II, to Czechoslovakia's Velvet Revolution in the early 1990s, and to Ottilie's years in exile in London, and her new life in strange, sky-draped Texas. History is thrillingly reenacted and recreated. Musical passages are conveyed with lyrical grace. There's regular doses of surprise and suspense that keep any reader, that will keep any reader immersed and involved. Prague is a beautiful, beautiful city. I know when I was there, I fell in love with the, the city. It is beautiful. And in the Prague Sonata, Bradford Morrow does bring the beauty of the city across on the page. And when you are in Prague, one of the strongest things that you notice in Prague is the city's love for music. There are recitals every possible venue. So to connect the city of Prague to the idea of music through the sonatas is a great, great celebration of the city itself. It's over 500 pages, so if you, if you, if you, if you start, it'll keep you busy for a while, but it's so compulsive that you will finish the book quite quickly. It's similar to Dan Brown, but as I said, a little bit more cerebral. The, the next book that we're going to talk about, I'm going to go uh, just finish all the thrillers first is published by Hogarth Shakespeare now, Hogarth is an imprint of Penguin Random House and they started out a project a few years ago inviting famous critically received and commercially successful authors to retell Shakespeare's stories but updated for the modern day and so we now have from Hogarth Shakespeare, Macbeth by Joe Nesbo. This is the, 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 the Hogarth Shakespeare project's most recent release 
after such entries as Howard Jacobson's take on The Merchant of Venice, and that Howard Jacobson won the Booker Prize a few years ago, a, a, a Jewish-British writer, so his book was called Shylock Is My Name, and Edward St. Auburn rewrote King Lear, but he called it Dunbar and set it in a media mogul's family rather than a land-owning father giving his land to, uh, to his daughters. We now have Macbeth Bar, the king of Scandi, Crime, Joe Nesbo. Turns out to be rather an inspired choice because the bloody tragedy of political ambition translates well to a corrupt police department in a lawless town where the cops are just one more armed gang. The Scottish play Macbeth is here transplanted to a geographically agnostic place that mixes terms of Scottish and Scandinavian origin. The area is called Fife, the sharpshooters named Olafsson. Along with lots of allegorical touches, the capital city is known simply as the capital. But we spend most of our time in a grim northern town where industry has shut down and it nearly always rains. From one clue we deduce that the story is set in the 1970s. And it turns out to be helpful to avoid characters having mobile phones. Nesbo piles on the forbidding atmosphere, writing of the soot and poison that lay like a constant lid of mist over the town, and several chapters open with the equivalent of an establishing shot in cinema as the prose follows a single raindrop or a seagull over the blasted town before happening upon major characters who are about to speak. Shakespeare leads a paramilitary SWAT unit. He is a man of the people, unnaturally strong, with a thing for daggers, Admittedly an unusual detail, amid these modern warriors fitted out with assault rifles and sniper scopes. He is so good at throwing knives, we are told, that he once nearly joined the circus. Duncan, meanwhile, is the chief commissioner of the police, and Malcolm his deputy. The leader of the narcotics unit, perhaps to avoid too many Scottish-sounding prefixes, is here known simply as Duff. The police are at semi-permanent war with the biker gang known as the Norse Riders, who serve as couriers for the top bad guy. This is Hecate. Rather than Shakespeare's Queen of the Witches, he is the town's untouchable drug lord, an old man also known as the Invisible Hand. He manufactures a drug called brew, not the alcohol whose effects Shakespeare's hangover Porter Riley describes, but a crack-like substance to which half the town is addicted. Three of Hecate's henchwomen play the role of the witches, promising that Macbeth will get the top job if he does nothing to interfere with the drug business. It's not long then until the murders start, with Macbeth egged on by his paramour, here known simply as Lady, a flame-haired femme fatale who runs a casino. Her scheme for him to murder Duncan is the same as Lady Macbeth's, stabbing him while he sleeps and blaming it on his bodyguards, arguably a terrible plan in the context of 20th century forensics. But Macbeth gets away with it and so wades deeper into the sea of blood that must finally engulf him. This sets the pace for Joe Nesbo's Macbeth. Joe Nesbo was asked by Hogarth Shakespeare, an imprint of Penguin Random House, to update the, uh, the the Macbeth story for modern days. There follows much edgy paranoia within the police department and some excellent action sequences involving cars and guns. A person is shot with the sound of a thud like hammer on meat. Nesbo orchestrates scenes of blackmail and fighting with the slickness of a writer who has sold 36 million crime novels. There are touches of the supernatural, sometimes with a naturalistic alternative explanation. The ghost of the murdered Banquo turns up at a dinner, but Macbeth might just be hallucinating because he's high. Nesbo finds some clever twists too on the source material. It would be invidious to give away what plays the role of Burnham Wood, but the sequence is majestically satisfying. This is Macbeth by Joe Nesbo. It's a deliciously oppressive page-turner that, like the tragedy of Macbeth itself, seems to harbor something ineradicably evil at its core. The main effect, indeed, of all the differences between this book and a standard modern potboiler is to remind you how weirdly nightmarish the original play is. 
what Shakespeare brewed up is still almost too over the top for the modern ultra-violent mass entertainment that we are so used to. So that's a great crime thriller, Joe Nesbo's retelling of Macbeth, and it's titled simply Macbeth. The next book that we're looking at, another thriller, is called Sleeper 13. It's by Rob Sinclair. It's published by Ryan. Rob Sinclair's first book was self-published, became a self-published phenomenon, and he was then snapped up by Orion Books. And he's been writing for quite a while. He specialized, Robson Kerr specialized in forensic fraud investigations at a global accounting firm for 13 years. He began writing in 2009 following a promise to his wife, who was an avid reader, that he could pen an unputdownable thriller. Since then, he sold over half a million copies of his critically acclaimed thrillers in both The Enemy and the James Riker series. His work has received widespread critical acclaim, with many reviewers and readers likening his work to authors at the top of the genre, including including Lee Child and Vince Flynn. What is Sleeper 13 about? So it's very, very topical. And once I've told you what the book's about... I'll tell you how this subgenre of thriller writing has become quite a growth point with new, with you know, new releases. Rob Sinclair has taken over the Robert Ludlum and the Tom Clancy crown for suspense novel thrillers, and he writes about the modern world every bit as good as Ludlum and Clancy wrote about the Soviet threat. Sleeper 13 is a boy, Aiden. He was a young man, he's a young man when the story starts, but as a boy he was taken from his London home by his father and passed over to a jihad terrorist school in the Middle East. The, ter- the terrorist school is simply called The Farm, where he became one of 13 boys who were taught how to be dangerous terrorists. Then, in the finest fashion of the old Soviet spa schools, they were sent back to their own countries all over Europe to wreak havoc. Living a normal life, the 13 sleepers wait for instruction from their leader. Number one, Wahid, a vicious thug who rose to the top because of his brutality at the terrorist camp, the farm. At the same time, Rachel Cox is a British secret servant agent who has heard rumours about the existence of the farm and its 13 graduates and is trying to substantiate their existence, but coming up against brick walls in British intelligence circles. Working in Syria, she has several informants. One of them is Aidan's sister, Nilay, who's looking for her brother. When Nilay is killed in a suicide bombing, it's not just Rachel who's affected. Aidan sees her death reported on the news. This is enough for the already conflicted Aidan to break away from his role in the upcoming terrorist attacks, which promise to be the biggest coordinated terror attack across the free world ever and seek out those responsible for his sister's death. When it becomes apparent that his fellow graduates had ordered her death because she was getting close to exposing them, he's left with only one mission. Kill them, but most of all, kill the man he holds responsible. Wahid, number one. Meanwhile, Cox is still having trouble convincing her bosses of the existence of the 13 and the threat they impose. Working together the same target... Sorry, working toward the same target, but for different reasons, Cox and Aiden race across Europe, attempting to reach members of the 13. This is Sleeper 13. He was their deadliest weapon. Now they are his target. By Rob Sinclair, published by Orion. Once again, and Glenelyn in book form. It will keep you glued to the page from beginning to end. Now, something... Totally different. We're going to look at a few more literary reads. The first one I'm going to talk about came out about four months ago. The book was it's called Cell, and it's by Mick Kitson. It's a skilled debut and follows two children as they escape from abuse and disappear into the Scottish wilderness. It's published by Cannon Gate, and it was mentioned on the show by... Viz Chetty when he came in from Penguin Random House. This is a book that 
I know the office here, Penguin Random House, and the MD, Steve Connell in Cape Town, were talking about in glowering terms. I don't think the book has sold as well as they hoped it would, which is why I think it's worth mentioning it again to give it one more bit of a push. Sal is the debut novel of Mick Kitson, a journalist-turned-teacher, He was frustrated with the books that appeared on the British English curriculum, and he set out to write something he would want to teach. In 13-year-old Sal, it has a strong and distinctive first-person narrator. Sal is on the run with her 10-year-old sister, the witty and compelling Pepper. After a year of watching YouTube videos and learning about survival, they run away into the Scottish wilderness in search of safety and redemption. Early on, we found out that Sal has killed her alcoholic mother's boyfriend, Robert, who has been sexually abusing her for five years. She has kept this a secret, placing a lock on her younger sister's door to protect her. But when Pepper turns ten, Sal realizes the lock will no longer be enough. After an act of ultimate self-defense, she grabs Pepper and they flee. Sal's main fear seems to be that she and her sister might be taken into care and split up. Their mother used to threaten them with, with this, as did Robert. He said Pepper would get fostered and adopted by Africans because she is half an African, and I'd be adopted by old people, and we wouldn't be together. And that is never going to happen. Sal's observations of her sisters are compelling and beautiful. She is either still like a stone or re- going really fast. She eats fast and she talks fast. The sisters' relationship is a real highlight of the book, and the differences in their personalities are well drawn. Sal talks about Instagram and Snapchat. She says the internet is mostly for porn, although she prefers it as a source of factual information for survival. You will love Sal for her pragmatic approach to the world. The girl's loyalty and the humor carries them through brutal circumstances. The sister's relationship also counteracts the impression that Sal perhaps has no emotional compass. While she says she does not see the point in feelings or understand the difference between action and emotion, she would not be capable of such fierce and selfless action for her sister had she not an understanding of morality and love. This is something that McKitson conveys with a deft hand, and it keeps the, firm, the reader firmly on Sal's side. The addition of a hippie survivalist in the Scottish forest, Ingrid, whom they meet in the wilderness, introduces another brilliant female character. The book is Sal, the author's McKitson, the publisher's Canongate. It's a book that deserves a far wider readership than it got when it was initially released a few months ago. And if you do see it in the bookshops... Give it a chance if you're at a book club and Sal is one of the books that has been selected. Give it a chance. It's a book that stays with you for long after you've finished reading it and it shows the vulnerability and the resilience of children in today's modern world. We'll be back with a few more books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're talking books, as we do every Friday between 11 and 12. All the books that have been discussed on the show and that I hope to get to by the end of the show have been posted on our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Like us and follow us regularly. I've posted a little bit about each of the titles and then the pictures of the covers. So when you walk into a bookshop, You'll be familiar with what the book looks like already, and you'll be ready to then dive into one of the great books that we've mentioned on the show today. The next book has what I think is the most beautiful cover of a book that I've seen in ages. The book's called All the Lives We Never Lived. The author is Anuradha Roy. It's published by Quirkus, and I know we say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but this is a seriously beautiful cover. The book is set in India, and uh, I think Anuradha Roy is a very well-received author, but what gives her even more of a following, I suppose, is that she has the same initials and the same surname as Arundhati Roy, one of India's most famous female writers. But Arundhati Roy doesn't have to follow on or 
follow in the wake of anyone else's reputation. Her writing is superb. I have reviewed one of her previous books here on the show, The Folds of the Land. She is an author of absolute exquisite writing craft. She can write beautiful, beautiful sentences, paragraphs, whole chapters. In, in the book... All the lives we never lived. Here is a novel that could so easily have been loud. It is set among large events, the fight for India's independence and the Second World War. It features characters from history who enter the lives of the novel's fictional characters, often to dramatic effect. Great Indian poet, great Indian singer, a dance and critic, the Ger- a German painter and curator Walter Spies. It has at its heart a young boy whose mother leaves him to live in another country and whose father responds to this crisis by also leaving the child for an extended period of time and who is late in prison for his anti-British activism. There are many reasons to turn up the volume dial. But readers of Arunanta Roy's previous novels, one of them, Sleeping on Jupiter, which was longlisted for the 2015 Man Booker Prize, know that shoutiness or showiness is never her style. She is a writer of great subtlety and intelligence who understands that emotional power comes from the steady accretion of detail. Amid all the great events and characters of history, she chooses as her narrator a horticulturalist known throughout by his nickname, Mishkin, a man who chose neither pen nor sword but a trowel. Mishkin is nine years old when his mother leaves him and his father in the fictitious Indian town of Muntazir and embarks on a new, his mother embarks on a new life with the German painter Spiss. Muntazir is 20 or so miles from the Himalayan foothills and its name means in Urdu one who waits impatiently. After his mother's departure, Mishkin's life is spent anxiously waiting for her letters to arrive for her to return. In later years, he compares that waiting to blood being drained away from our bodies until one day there was no more left. The older Mishkin, a man in his 60s, narrates the story. He is the adult version of the child whose blood drained away, now living quietly, more at home among trees than people. In the course of this deliberately self-contained life, a bulky envelope arrives one day. It is something to do with his mother, he knows and he cannot bring himself either to open it or throw it away. Instead, his narration takes us back to his child, his mother's childhood and then to his own. He is a man seeking to understand why his mother, Gayatri, made the choice she did, and to this end he delves into the unusual freedom of her adolescence, compared with the rigidity and constraint of her married existence in 1930s India. She was an artist and dancer, married to a man who saw dance as scandalous and art as irrelevant, particularly when set against the great matters of history in which he chose to be involved, as a member of an anti-colonial organization, the Society for Indian Patriots. Into her world steps Walter Spiss, bringing with him new possibilities. But Gayatri's own life and art and Mishkin's memories of his parents' marriage are not sufficient to explain to him why his mother did what she did. He looks for answers elsewhere, searching in literature for insights into the tensions between women's desires and the world's expectations of them. To this end, the novel gives some space to discussing the Indian poet Maitreyi Devi, who wrote about her early romance with the Romanian writer Mircea Iliad. It's perhaps the only point in the book that doesn't feel entirely balanced. Devi's story could have done with occupying far le- either far more or less space in the novel. But part of Roy's skill as a writer is shown in her ability to real- reveal the awful consequences of Gayatri's choices while retaining great compassion for those choices. This novel is not interested in condemning absent mothers. By contrast, Roy is refreshingly unimpressed by the anti-imperial activities of Mishkin's father, who seeks freedom from being ruled while behaving like a tyrant in his own home. That the world that rewards men for their public actions and forgives them for their private cruelties, placing national politics above gender politics, is one that Roy slices through in her prose, though always obliquely. All the lives we never lived 
is set largely in the early part of the 20th century, with some sections in the 1990s. This is literary fiction. It's beautifully written. It's a book to savor over while you read and you dip into these characters' complicated lives. And it's a book that will reward that reading experience with the greater understanding of both people and historical eras and also just reveling in beautiful, beautiful writing. The next book we're going to talk about is, uh, it's called Truth, A User's Guide. I've got a few books. I don't think I'm going to get through everything that I plan to for today. The reason I want to discuss this book is because truth has become such a buzzword in the world today. And from America, we're getting books like Hector MacDonald's Truth, A User's Guide, how the many sides to every story shape our reality for the reason that Donald Trump and his campaign, his campaign against fake news and his usage of Twitter in order to set government policy is causing a lot of backlash, a lot of thought devoted to truth, devoted to how truth is manipulated. So Hector MacDonald's book, Truth, A User's Guide, How the Many Sides of Every Story Shape Our Reality, which is published by Bantam Press, is a timely addition to what is really one of the growth points in the publishing world, writing about how we deal with fake news. We'll be back with a bit of a discussion around the book Truth straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. As I said before the ad break, Hector MacDonald has written a book called Truth, A User's Guide. Hector MacDonald is an expert in business storytelling. As a strategic communications consultant, he has advised the leaders of some of the world's top corporations in industries as diverse as financial services, telecoms, technology, and healthcare. He's also the best-selling author of four novels. This is the type of person you'll see at TED, Ed, or, at TED or at like talks at Google. For fans of Nudge, Black Box Thinking, and The Art of Thinking Clearly, this is a fascinating dive into the many ways in which competing truths shape our opinions, behaviors, and beliefs. True or false? It's really that simple. There's more than one truth about most things. Eating meat is nutritious, but it's also damaging to the environment. The Internet disseminates knowledge, but it also spreads hatred. When we communicate... We naturally select the truths that are most helpful to our, our agenda. We can select truths constructively to inspire organizations, encourage children, and drive progressive change. Or we can select truths that give a false impression of reality, misleading people without actually lying. Others can do the same, motivating or deceiving us with the truth. Truths are neutral, but highly versatile tools that we can use for good or ill. In Truth, a User's Guide, Hector MacDonald explores how truth is used and abused in politics, business, the media, and everyday life. He shows how a clearer understanding of truth's many faces renders, renders us better able to navigate our world and more influential within it. Combining great storytelling with practical takeaways and a litany of fascinating, funny, and insightful case studies, Truth is a sobering and engaging read about how profoundly our, man, our mindsets and actions are influenced by the truths that those around us choose to tell. So, similar to Malcolm Gladwell and the entire social sciences, behavioral economics, and uh, psychological genre, this is an American book and looking at how we can cut through the, the, the noise around truth to get to what people are using, how people are using truth to pursue their own agendas. Another book which also nonfiction, it's called The Physics of Everyday Things. It's the Extraordinary Science Behind an Ordinary Day. It's by James Kakalios, published by Robinson. James Kakalios is the Taylor Distinguished Pre Professor in the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Minnesota, and is the author of the best-selling The Physics of Superheroes. Now, isn't that a great idea, The Physics of Superheroes? 
he is uh, he's a pop- he's, he's a writer of popular science, and what he did is he looked at the type of day the average person will live, whether it's waking up and making coffee in the morning, using your smartphone, catching a flight, using electricity. And then looking at the physics behind the different things that we interact with and lifting the veil over all the science that goes into making our everyday day our day. Most of us are clueless when it comes to the physics that makes our modern world so convenient. What's the simple science behind motion sensors, touchscreens, toasters? How do we enter our offices using touch on passes, find our way to new places using GPS or store our data on the cloud? These questions bother you. Surely they bother me as well. In the physics of the everyday things, James Kakalios turns an ordinary day into something spectacular as he takes us on a fascinating journey into the subatomic marvels that underlie so much of what we use and take for granted. Breaking down the world of things into a single day, Kakalios engages our curiosity about how our fridges keep food cool, how plane manages to remain airborne, and how our wrist fitness monitors keep track of our steps. Each explanation is coupled with a story revealing the interplay of the astonishing invisible forces that surround us. So if these type of things do interest you, or if your children always ask you that one question, why, 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 again and again, and you just don't have the information at your fingertips, why does the fridge work the way that it does, the physics of everyday things with James Kakalios is for you. It will give you a lot of enjoyment as well as informing you. It's been a full show today. As I said at the beginning, I'm looking forward next week to an interview with Francois Malby Anthony. She's the author of An Elephant in My Kitchen. Her late husband, Lawrence Anthony, was the elephant whisperer. That's something to look forward to next week. All the books that we've mentioned on the show today have been posted on our Facebook page. So go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. You will find all the books there. All our shows are also podcast. You can go to High FM's website, go to podcasts, look for Friday, the 11 to 12 o'clock slot, clock, the 11 to 12 o'clock slot, and you can catch up on any of the shows over the last few years that you've missed, our interviews, our reviews. And so both the show here, our Facebook page and the podcast keep you fully immersed in a world of reading great books. And until next week, good Shabbos and keep reading.